So hello everyone and uh, a warm welcome to each of you to this evening's session or this night times session depending on where you are. Uh, yeah, this evening uh, Christina and I would, would like to um, offer some some joint reflections actually um, uh, on the theme together, uh, the theme of what is mindfulness and how does it work? What is mindfulness and how does it work? And it sounds like there's been some discussion around this in some of the small groups. And of course, it's a really key question for us, both as practitioners and also as teachers. You know, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes a question that uh, we are asked as teachers and interesting to keep kind of updating our reflections on what, how might I respond to that question. Um, and like, in fact, just to start this, this uh, uh, evening's talk, really by just asking you, inviting you to, to pause for a moment and just reflect, you know, how do you, how are you in this moment experiencing mindfulness? And, you know, what, what would you say it is? Or what would you say its qualities are in this moment? I mean, what, what, we, may, what we may notice is uh, there's a, a present moment quality to it. Would that be right? Do you, do you get that sense? There's, there's a present moment-ness about it. And, and maybe a quality of, of knowing. Can you, can you feel that? That there's a kind of present moment knowing that is uh, kind of integral to what mindfulness is. Does that make sense? Can you, can you recognize that? This word knowing is in fact the most common word in the Satipatthana Sutta. So mindfulness as a kind of knowing, a kind of present moment knowing. Which might seem like it's quite a kind of receptive mode that mindfulness is a kind of present moment receiving of experience and, and yet some of you were commenting in your your groups today about how christina really gave a sense last evening of of some quite active dimensions of mindfulness do you remember she said how these limbs of awakening these awakening factors could all be seen as dimensions of mindfulness. 
and you, you know just to, to reckon okay so there's there's both something that can be receptive or there are receptive dimensions of mindfulness but also some more active dimensions or possibilities within this experience that we call mindfulness and and as well as knowing do you remember how Christina said it's also an unknowing you know it's an unknowing and in a sense, we, we start to get a, a sense that this is actually a really rich and multifaceted experience and practice, this quality of mindfulness. Sometimes when we read about mindfulness in you know, the media or even in some mindfulness books, we get quite a binary sense of it. You're either mindful or you're not. But actually, if one looks in the the early Buddhist teachings, one gets a sense of actually a very rich and multi-dimensional um, orientation and practice that can't be neatly defined, which is one of the kind of, uh, in a certain way, one of the challenges. It can't be so neatly defined because, and this is what, you know, we heard about last evening, it, it, mindfulness exists in dependent relationship with a variety of different factors of mind. It doesn't have a neat line around it, you know. So it has both more receptive and more active aspects to it. It has both knowing and, and unknowing. Um, and the more we look into the way this, the Buddha uses this term, sati, we see this richness, this, this kind of dependent, mutual dependence of mindfulness on other factors of mind. And that's part of what we'd really like to explore uh, this evening. Just to say again that this that the, the just in case it hasn't landed landed with you that the Pali term for mindfulness is this term sati. So I'm just popping that in the chat, which in fact comes from a Pali word um, uh, sarati, or it's related to the verb to remember. Oh, sorry, that says safari. That should say <laughs> sarati, which means to to remember yeah and we could say that mindfulness is a kind of remembering isn't it it's a kind of remembering to be present a kind of remembering to be present and you know one good translation as well as present moment knowing could be a, a present moment recollection a present moment recollection which has that lovely sense of kind of collecting experience into a present moment awareness a present moment knowing it's it's important to distinguish 
mindfulness from attention. So the Buddha uses a different word um, uh, for attention from the word mindfulness. It's the word manasikara. I'll put that, pop that in. Um, which in the Buddhist psychology, uh, can you sense that the, the kind of truth of this, that attention can be flavored with many different attitudes? So I don't mean putting things in the chat to distract you. So, so they'll all be here if you save the chat afterwards. But can, do you sense how attention can be flavored with many different attitudes, can't it? kind of uh, friendly or hostile, you know, uh, kind of uh, present moment or just ruminating on past and future. So the Buddha describes attention as ethically variable. So it can either be wholesome or attention can be really unwholesome, can't it? We can pay very unwholesome attention to things that's obsessive, that's self-judgmental, that's cruel, that's just ruminative. You know, this would be unwholesome attention. What the Buddha called right mindfulness or wise mindfulness is always ethically wholesome. Yeah, it's always ethically wholesome. And uh, that means it's contextualized within the larger sense of the path that involves ethics, that involves mental cultivation, that involves wisdom. So, so wise mindfulness has this wholesome quality that we could, and again, Christina pointed to this last evening, say is really characterized by the presence of kindness, by the presence of metta as an indispensable dimension of an indispensable dimension. So really this just kind of opening reflections are really about just acknowledging this is rich, this is multidimensional. And uh, it can be helpful in one's practice when, you, when one sits down to practice to sense, oh, am I just paying attention here? Or am I actually paying mindfulness that is kind, that is engaged, that is interested? So pass over to Christina. Uh, just a few more reflections in this opening. Uh, this word sati is apparently the most frequently used word in the early texts. So clearly it is a quality that the Buddha gave enormous value to. In fact, when you, you look at many of the lists that are used to, to kind of communicate the teaching, many of those lists begin with this quality of sati. Um, also useful to know in the, the, in the earliest translations from Pali into English uh, of, the, of the early texts, um, you know, the translators really struggled to find a single word to describe this quite complex quality. So in their inability to, to find one, they, they borrowed the word mindfulness from the Gospels. So it's a kind of imported, borrowed translation. I think in the early texts, uh, in, in Buddhist psychology, there's, 
there's a couple of things that I, I think are helpful to bear in mind about mindfulness. First of all, it's, it's never presented as being an end in itself. Hmm? Never presented as being an end in itself. It is an embarkation point, almost a, a launch pad for understanding, for investigation, for development, for cultivation. All of these require mindfulness to be in place, but it's not an end in itself. The other thing that's very noticeable is, is as Chris has mentioned, it is never a standalone quality. Mindfulness is always coexisting and cooperating with other qualities. You could say it has a very, quite a large, extended, healthy, happy, functional family. And if you extract mindfulness from those extended families, you probably do end up more with attention than with mindfulness itself. So one of those extended families I spoke about last night in the limbs of awakening, which can be see as, seen as relational qualities or, uh, of mindfulness, or they can be seen really as different nuances of mindfulness. Now, the other extended family, which I think is absolutely essential in the development of wise mindfulness, of course, is the family of the, the, the Brahma Baharas, the family of kindness, of compassion, of joyfulness, and equanimity. Because mindfulness in this sense, it is not attitudinally neutral. It's, it's not attitudinally neutral. Mindfulness brings with it a certain attitude to experience, a qualitative way of being with experience. So in this sense, it really can't be separated um, from those extended families. It would be an orphan. It wouldn't thrive. Um, the other thing that I think that is useful is we begin to explore, for example, these different nuances of mindfulness. It means that we don't have a sort of one-dimensional toolbox. We don't just have a hammer or we don't just have a saw. You know, we can actually be present with our experience and actually begin to get a sense of what nuance of mindfulness is actually helpful here in being most awake, in being most grounded. Is it investigation? You know, is it joyfulness? Is it equanimity? Is it calming? So we begin to actually read our inner landscape. And although this can feel quite complex on, on some level, I think with practice, actually, this becomes quite intuitive. You begin to sense really what is an appropriate response to what is occurring just now. So what we want to do this evening is, is unpack mindfulness a little bit um, uh, into it, it, its different domains. It's a slightly different perspective than certainly a different perspective than what I used last night to really look at what wise mindfulness is. And I think our launch pad for this is going to be drawing upon some of the um, imagery that the Buddha used, because I think sometimes the imagery is really helpful because it, it, it strikes us in a different way than just words or concepts. And it truly does give a, 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 a you know, picture 
of how big this landscape of mindfulness actually is. So Chris and I are going to bat this back and forth a little bit. Um, so hopefully I actually enjoy using the imagery a great deal. So one of the images that is used for mindfulness is the image of a person being stuck in a bramble bush, a thorn bush, and needing to get out. Now, probably some of you have had that experience. And you know that if you're caught in a bush of brambles or thorns, the last thing you want to do is suddenly start yanking and tearing your way out. You will get more and more thorns. You will get more and more scratched. So the image that is used is, a, is of a person carefully, move, moving very carefully so that they don't harm themselves, so that they don't become more entangled. And in a sense, this conveys this quality within mindfulness of care, of vigilance, of moderation, you know, moderation in a sense, you know, calmness and circumspection. Okay, Chris, I'll hand you one. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose a, a contrasting one just to give a sense of the, the, the different modes that one of the images the Buddha uses is of climbing a tower or being on an elevated platform which enables you to survey a landscape. You can feel how different that is from the bramble bush. But at certain times, and some of you have been commenting on this, that the sense of mindfulness as, as kind of an, providing a perspective on our experience. It's almost like a stepping back and knowing, like we heard about this morning, oh, this is anxiety, or oh, this is sadness, or this is contentment. I also think of that image as, as also bringing into mindfulness this quality of spaciousness. That it's in a way, it's a it's a non-preferential attend uh, mindfulness. It's including the whole landscape. You know that sense of a kind of overview. Now, another of the images that is used, and I, I alluded to this previously, is the image of the gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper stands at the gates of the city and warmly welcomes in the visitors to the city who have the intention of, of, of serving the city well, of caring for the inhabitants of the city. And the gatekeeper also in standing at the gates of the city acknowledges, but actually politely refuses entry to any of the visitors to the gates that have the intention of undermining the well-being of the city or its inhabitants. And again, this is drawing upon this, this quality of discernment um, that I highlighted last night, this, this capacity to know what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress, the capacity to know what is uh, worthy to be cultivated and what is not helpful to cultivate. Now, this discernment quality, of course, is bringing mindfulness into a much more investigative mode, but it is also bringing mindfulness into a protective mode. And this is very different than a defensive mode. 
you know a good gatekeeper is not sort of taking pot shots at everybody who shows up at the gates it's not a defensive mode it's a protective mode and when you think about this in relationship to our own well-being what are we protecting the heart from i would suggest is from the surges of impulses and patterns and reactions that we know very well and that do not serve us well this is actually exercised quite strongly in eight week programs you know when a person for example is doing the body scan and they're suddenly caught by some rumination or some or some obsession you don't actually encourage the people to continue with that do you you actually encourage people to come back to the body this is an exercise in protective awareness in protecting the well-being of our own hearts and it's it's amplified in in another image which is that of a cow herd who uh whose responsibility it is to keep the cows in an appropriate pasture and uh sometimes of the year that is uh easy and at other times of the year that requires quite a lot of goading quite a lot of attention and even using a stick to keep the cows in the correct pasture and you know that is also protective isn't it because our uh, minds uh, forage in different pastures some of which may be quite unhelpful you know we find ourselves obsessing or we find ourselves slipping into rumination and again you know if one thinks as we referred earlier to the the breathing space in mbct there's a little moment there isn't there where the first step is to recognize particularly recognize if the mind is engaged in unhelpful reactivity to a mood or a situation and to take it to a more appropriate pasture which is the sensations of the body the sensations of breathing and so we have this this strong theme in the dharma and in eight week programs of mindfulness being protective mindfulness seeking to uh, direct attention to that which is wholesome and away from that which is unwholesome another of the images as it is used is <clears throat> of a stake a post hammered into the ground and there are six leads or leashes attached to this post and on the end of each leash there's a a wild animal kind of uh, striving to escape and striving to get away and to follow its familiar patterns of you know kind of rampaging through everything so the post hammered into the ground is the post of sati the post of mindfulness and the six wild animals are the five traditional sense doors hearing seeing tasting touching smelling and the sixth sense door of the mind 
And what has been recognized, I think, in this image is how easy it is to be uh, a prisoner of habit patterns. A prisoner of habit patterns that actually just want to flee from the present moment. They just want to abandon the present moment. How easy it is for our sense doors to be almost uh, messengers of compulsive behavior or habitual behavior. And as this image is portrayed, that initially the animals are, are desperately seeking to escape, but then they begin to calm and they begin to settle and they begin to collect and they're no longer driven by those compulsions. I particularly like this, this image and it's kind of embodied quality. We could say mindfulness of the body is like this strong stake in the ground. One could almost imagine in a sitting posture the spine as like a kind of stake in the ground, like a strong post in the ground. And uh, that it provides this anchor, this, this place of steadiness, this uh, support, this ground. Uh, from which we can feel how the, the senses uh, kind of pull us away. But there's a sense of always being able to come back, always being to come back, able to come back. And uh, I appreciate one of our colleagues who, who uh, suggests that having these animals on elastic leashes, like, like, like dogs, so that the pulling away isn't, and the pulling back isn't too abrupt, you know. It's like there's some flexibility here, you know. They pull away, and then there is this, this kind of coming back uh, and, and letting the, the, the stake in the ground, letting the, the body sitting, letting the spine in its uprightness uh, be a place of returning when we feel these six domains of preoccupation, of distraction, of fascination, of getting lost, really. We can get, get lost in the domains of the senses. And just to have that sense of mindfulness, of sati, mindfulness of the body as this place to come back to, so supportive. Another of the images is uh, quite a medical image, which is concerned with uh, diagnosis um, and prognosis. So the image that's used is um, a, a person's been shot with an arrow and the shaft of the arrow has broken off. So the head of the arrow is buried in the person's arm, uh, not so visible. And so the person goes to a surgeon and a good surgeon actually wouldn't immediately jump in and sort of chop off the arm. They'd, they'd, they'd probe the wound carefully to ascertain the nature of the wound. So as to be able to prescribe a, a course of treatment and offer a prognosis. And th this particular image is really portraying this investigative domain or investigative nuance of sati, 
that we're learning almost to palpate experience with mindfulness, to, to touch experience with mindfulness, to really understand what is happening, what is needed, and the prognosis of healing. We get the sense here of these, these different emerging functions of mindfulness in the, in the suttas. Uh, and the, the domain of caring, you know, of healing, is also really present in the image of, of mindfulness uh, and metta in the metta sutta as like a mother caring for a child. So, so bringing this sense of, of tenderness, of care, of, of well-wishing, of affection to experience. This is, is very, you know, one senses how some of these images and similes are, are more kind of, uh, kind of firm and, and disciplining and others have tremendous tenderness and that, that part of the art of mindfulness is, is, is knowing what's needed when. Uh, another of the images is, is the, the image of a, a person uh, walking through a very crowded marketplace and they, they have a destination in mind and they carry on their head a full bowl of oil and they're followed by a person with a sword who threatens to cut off their head if they spill any of the oil. It's quite a dramatic image. Um, and I think what is trying to be portrayed here is this dimension of mindfulness, which is really grounded in the body, needed to be grounded in the body to navigate that territory, um, which actually does have a destination in mind, but also has this quality of, of alertness and vigilance, not hypervigilance, but a real inner listening and attuned inner listening to, to find that sense of balance. Perhaps there, there are so many of these and, and they're, they're all illuminating in different ways. <coughs> There's one more that I, I wanted to mention is, is the one that, uh, sees mindfulness as, as keeping streams and flowing water in check. This is a bit related to the image of the city with its six gates or the six animals around the post, uh, uh, you know, tied to the post with their elastic strings. There, there's also this sense that mindfulness directs the flow uh, and checks the flow, prevents the, the flowing of experience outward uh, from just kind of gushing and and flowing unskillfully and creating a flood, so it's like a, a kind of shaping of the flow of energy of experience in ways that are wholesome and helpful. So we could actually go on for quite a long time with these images, but um, I'm also keeping an eye on the time because we have some other things to speak about. So we wanted to speak about some of the functions of mindfulness. How does it work? You know, how does it operate? And you know, I have a, 
a short list I've, I've uh, created along with others. And each of them really does have a different, a different function. And these are, of course, portrayed in these images. The first, I'll, just, I'll just go through the list and then perhaps we'll unpack them a bit. So the first of the functions or the manifestations of mindfulness is this quality we have spoken about of simple knowing. To know the body as the body, to know the mind as the mind, to know a feeling as a feeling, to know a thought as a thought. This simple knowing. The second dimension is the dimension, as we've spoken about, of protective awareness. And within this domain, of course, there is deep elements of kindness and compassion. The third domain is the domain of investigative awareness that we've mentioned. The fourth domain is about reframing cognition. Reframing cognition. The next of the domains or functions of mindfulness is about cleaning up the field of perception. And the last of the domains, as I also mentioned earlier, is rebalancing negative attentional bias. So these are all really significant aspects of mindfulness. Um, in a way, we can almost describe them as another new list of limbs or you know, nuances of mindfulness um, that are cooperating together, often in ways that we're not actually sort of conceptually acknowledging, except then we notice the shifts, we notice the changes, we notice somehow that our perceptual field is different, or we notice that our, our cognitions have been reframed, or um, we, we've noticed we're able to sort of investigate more easily. But they all have a particular effect upon us, which I think is important to acknowledge. And I, maybe I'll just start with the first one, Chris, and then I pass over. So the first one is this, this nuance or this effect or function of simply knowing. It sounds very simple, um, but it is anything but easy. And I think this, this is such a, almost the primary skill we learn in ourselves and the primary skill we teach to others. To actually know the body as the body, a thought as a thought. Recognizing that our knowing is often a knowing that is filtered through a world of interpretations, associations, memories, judgments, we think we know something because of that filtering process. So in a way, the development of the simply knowing is stepping out of that field of interpretations of judgments and associations to know something as it is just now. Now, something very important happens in developing this capacity for simply knowing because actually we are stepping out of the eye of the storm. I'm no longer caught in the thought storm or the emotional storm or the arguments I'm having with the body. I've actually stepped out of the eye of the storm and I've begun to establish a relationship, almost a dialogue with what is being experienced. 
So what is really being developed in this simply, simply knowing is this quality of non-identification. It's, it's a moment when we stop defining ourselves by the contents of our experience. This is profound, isn't it? We're not saying I'm a sad person or I'm an angry person or I'm a worried person, you know, or I'm sick or, you know, I, I, am, I am this pain. Ah, there's this simply knowing. By stepping out of the identification, a different response is enabled and allowed. And I think it's important to see that the, the nature of identification is to be contracted around whatever is identified with and then being defined by whatever is identified with. Much is sacrificed in that contractedness. So developing this capacity as we do, um, both in contemporary mindfulness trainings and in traditional practices, where it, it is a very profound step, it's a very profound shift from identification to dialogue, to relationship. I suppose I would, would just want for a moment to give a health warning about lists and you know, sometimes we can hear a list like this and think, oh my goodness, I've got to get all these things together uh, and you've got to, you know, work through them. As Christina said, th this list actually illuminates what we're doing anyway in contemporary mindfulness-based uh, approaches, what we're doing anyway in the practice of the Buddha's teachings of Satipatthana. And as I think we said yesterday, maybe, um, the Buddha starts with this simple knowing as a very accessible and, um, yeah, in a, in a sense, a, a, a very easily, easy to do in that he starts with postures. And he says, you know, sit and know that you're sitting. Stand and know that you're standing. Walk and know that you're walking lie down and, and know that you're lying down. And, you know, that knowing, that simple knowing is the foundation out of which this experience of knowing is enriched as the sutta progresses. Some of you will know that the next section of the sutta really invites us to go through the activities of our days knowing what we're doing. I think it's John Kabat-Zinn who sometimes likes to describe mindfulness as doing something and knowing that you're doing it. Uh, and the Buddha really invites that simple knowing of being present with what we're doing, with what we're doing. As Christina says, this, this knowing becomes enriched as we move through the sutta and also becomes a quality of know-how, knowing how things work, knowing uh, how to respond to experience, knowing experience as it is, rather than taking it as being me or mine. So really to feel the kind of, in a sense, the accessibility of simple knowing and the ways in which it can develop.
I think this second um, domain of protective awareness, we've actually spoken about quite a bit, but it's very important to remember that this is where the quality of discernment really comes into being, that discernment is very different than judgment. It, it's almost as if in the face of our thoughts, our moods, our body experiences, our intentions, it's almost as if we ask them to pass through a few gates. You know, and at the first gate we might ask, is this helpful or unhelpful? At the second gate we might ask, does this lead to distress or does it lead to the end of distress? At another gate we might ask, is this skillful or unskillful? And when we ask, does this lead to distress or the end of distress, it's not just about our own. Does this lead to the affliction of ourselves or of others? Or does, lead, does this lead to the end of affliction for ourselves or for others? We might invite our experience to pass through a gate where we say, does this lead towards a greater sense of freedom? Or does it lead towards a greater sense of imprisonment? And again, this can sound initially sort of quite busy and quite mechanical, but I think it is a discerning quality that actually does, to some degree, sink into our bones. It's not, it's not a conceptual exercise. It's almost we get the felt sense, but sometimes actually developing that felt sense actually is helped by being able to language these things, you know? to give words to them, and then to allow those words to settle and calm and to have those gates established within ourselves. And as I mentioned yesterday, it is this discerning element of protective awareness that really links uh, sati or mindfulness to wise action, wise response. I, I still remember the moment that I heard Christina say in a Dharma talk many years ago, there is such a thing as wise avoidance. And, uh, you know, for, for some of us, that may sound like a heresy. And yet, it's very much what the Buddha means by protective awareness. A book that uh, we're both very keen on is, is the book Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. And... Uh, by David Trelevin. And we will all have in our mindfulness classes people who need encouragement and support in learning how not to go there until they feel sufficiently resourced to go there. Learning how to redirect attention to the soles of the feet when it's become preoccupied and fixated with a difficult thought or an anxious breath. And that, I suppose that's kind of the wisdom of grounding in lots of ways or an aspect of that, that that is, can be a, a sense of avoiding in order to resource, avoiding in order to resource and in due course then to turn back towards experience when the mind has been uh, supported, when it's been nourished by a sense of enjoyment or appreciative joy, when it's been warmed with a sense of kindness. All of this is uh, kind of dimensions of practical 
protective awareness. The next of these elements is the element that we already have again spoken to is quite a bit this quality of in investigative awareness, which is really essentially about waking up to the nature of what's happening. To, to the nature of experience, to the nature of phenomena. It's waking up out of the, the grip of repetitive patterns. You know? Waking up from the grip of repetitive patterns and being able to walk different pathways on the basis of understanding what is actually occurring, how it comes into being, and where it takes us. Um, you know, some of you might be familiar with that, that poem of um what is it walking down the street in five short chapters yeah. i think a lot of you will be familiar with that poem you know i walk down the street there's a hole in the sidewalk i don't see it i fall in you know i walk down the same street there's a hole in the sidewalk i still fall in it it's not my fault you know as i walk down the street there's a hole in the sidewalk i fall in again it is my fault you know i walk down the same street there's a hole in the sidewalk I walk around it. I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. No, I no, I walk down another street. You know, I walk down another street. So being able to do that is very much linked to this investigative awareness, you know, of, of really seeing what is taking place so we don't keep falling in the same holes, so that we can actually walk down another street. And as I mentioned last night, you know, investigative awareness in, in the Buddha's view of waking up is the most important limb of awakening. And that, that question, what's happening? What's happening now? That can be followed by, both by the wisdom question, which we could say is, how does this work? How does this work? And the, the Buddha, in relation to both the veiling factors, the hindrances, and the awakening factors, really encourages us to get to know how they work, get to know whether they're present, whether they're not present, what gives rise to them, how they can be removed if they're hindrances, or how they can be maintained if they're awakening factors. So it's like the craft of practice. So the wisdom question, how does this mental state work, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome? And the compassion question, which could be, what does this need? What does this need? What feels like an appropriate response to this uh, mental state, this experience, this uh, experience of suffering? So these really, you know, investigation is, is so crucial, this interest interest it's part of i think our gift to those in our mindfulness classes and maybe it's almost the most you know important gift we give is to be interested in their experience to help if you like jump start their own curiosity in their own experience because there's empowerment in that curiosity it's hard to be completely stuck in a mental state that we're also interested in if I'm interested in how this sadness works or interested in how this fear works, that interest isn't caught up in the fear or the sadness. So really, you know, the, the, the kind of 
fire of our curiosity is, is crucial in what liberates the heart-mind. Reframing cognition very much draws upon this investigative factor. I hope you might remember the story of, I told about the dog, my encounter with the dog in, in Israel. It actually didn't have a tumor growing out of its head. It was lying beside a stone. It, reframing cognition is, is much about reclaiming our sense of wonder, our capacity to see anew, our capacity to see freshly rather than through this world of uh, you know, interpretations and, and judgments and how we have known something before. It's that willingness to shift the views we have about ourselves, about others, about life. You know the story that begins, I am. Or the story that begins, you are. Or the story that begins, this is. You know, that capacity to actually question, see what lies beneath our views, our assumptions, our concepts, our knowing. And it is, as, as we referred to earlier, in a sense, this movement into unknowing. You know, this allowing of ourselves to, to, to be surprised in every moment. You know, and I have a sense that our capacity to deepen and flourish and grow as human beings relies upon our willingness to be surprised. And, you know, perhaps it's no surprise that we don't always treasure that, that being surprised. Because knowing, knowing, it really... Um, releases us from responding anew. It releases us from investigation. It releases us from, you know, the demand or the need to learn and relearn what is going on. How many times have you taught a class where, you know, perhaps into four, week four, week five, a person will suddenly say, oh, I've never experienced a body quite like this before. Oh, I spent a whole sitting without being agitated. Oh, how can that be? You know, I, I see it all the time in more traditional practice environments. You know, I remember very clearly once a, a, a person, a, a practitioner, experiencing, you know, quite very deep, deep states of collectedness and all kinds of energetic events happening and all kinds of, of joyfulness happening and, and coming to me and saying, I don't do joy. This must be menopause. I don't do joy. And and actually say actually maybe you do do joy, you know? That that shifting that sometimes we're we're quite reluctant at times to do. Um because that means actually responding to the world, responding to ourselves differently. No, it's coming out of familiarity. Of course, we have been practicing reframing cognition and reframing perception in our practice of metta uh, each afternoon so far, the last two days. You know, precisely what we're doing in that practice is using uh, perceptions that are skillful to reframe our experience. So today we, we reflected on the neutral category. Uh, 
and that tendency not to see the neutral person. Uh, and what is it really to use perception? May you be safe. May you be well. As a way of reframing cognition. So we see afresh. We see afresh without that the habit that dismisses or that is not interested. And similarly, of course, with the difficult person that we also reflected on, you know, the, we're practicing a new way of looking that can help to unbind the heart from the perceptions that, that, that tighten the grip of suffering. And in uh, MBCT courses, of course, um, a key invitation is to reframe perception or cognition of the nature of thought and thinking. So session six called Thoughts Are Not Facts. The, the, the usual default habit to treat thoughts as uh, factual, as true, as me, as mine, as defining me, as defining my reality. We're invited to learn this, uh, this skill of decentering in psychological terms or metacognition, where we practice seeing thoughts as thoughts, seeing thoughts as thoughts. And as Christine is saying, that also implies seeing them as not me, not mine. This was one of the Buddha's oft-repeated instructions, famous sutta, where he gives this advice to his son, saying, practice seeing everything as it really is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not me. This is not mine. This is not who I am. And that capacity to disidentify from experience that is, is kind of encouraged in our use as mindfulness teachers of the word the rather than your. So in the body scan, take attention to the feet, the legs, the breathing, the body, rather than you know, your body, your feet, your legs. We're, we're encouraging that, that subtle reperception that unclings, that unknows experience in terms of me and mine and knows it as it really is with a more liberated wisdom. The next of these dimensions is about cleaning up the field of perception. And this is really concerned with severing the link that seems so automatic between perception and emotional memory. Say a person has had a, a, a severe illness in a bad, say a person has had a, 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 dealt with cancer and they're healed and they, they go to sit and there is a sudden unpleasant sensation in their belly. How quick it is for the mind to move from that unpleasant sensation to say, oh, this is a return of the cancer. How often when you, you've been hurt by somebody in the past and you don't see them for 10 years and you catch sight of them and you don't see that person, what you actually see is the emotional memory, the emotional association being repeated in the present. So it's not just that perception ties into memory. Perception ties into 
emotional memory. Without mindfulness, that emotional memory actually finds its feet in the present moment and is repeated over and over again, which is why we find ourselves often caught in these cycles of repetition because it's not just about seeing something as we've seen it in the past, but it's also remembering how we felt about what we have seen or what we have experienced in the past being repeated in the present. You know, classic examples of this, of course, are in PTSD, um, you know, where there's a repetition, you know, a single sound, you know, a single sight can trigger that, that avalanche of emotional memory in the present. Um, the Buddha says, uh, you know, this really keeps us caught in repeating the past over and over and over again, you know, as, a, as if we're sort of a hamster on one of those wheels going round and round, stuck in the same emotional framework, um, you know, which sometimes shocks us, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever been home on a family holiday, you know, and, and particularly, you know, if you've got a, had a sort of difficult family, you know, and, and you walk in the door, you know, and your mother or your father or your sister or your brother just needs to say one thing to you, one word, or look at you in a particular way, and you're 10 years old again, you know, just repeating the same sort of reaction, the same, you know, angst about, and feeling quite bound to that. In a way, I think William Blake once said, you know, if the, if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is infinite. And yet when the doors of perception are really tied into not just seeing things as we've seen them before, but feeling about them as we've felt before, the world is always appearing finite. It's walking in those circles. So it's about severing the link. What mindfulness does in a very powerful way is sever that link that seems so automatic between perception and emotional memory and history. This is what allows us to be present. It's what allows us to, to open the door to a wealth of resources that we're actually deprived of as long as we're walking in those circles. And this is really... The, the wisdom aspect of mindfulness. This is the way in which mindfulness uh, can see the more it's informed with understanding, the more it's informed with wise view, it can see things as they are. It can see things not through the lens and the prism of the past or the prism of me and mine, but liberated, allowed to be uh, what it is in the moment and and this uh, these perceptions of not me not mine and the perception of impermanence as well which is repeated again and again in the buddha's instructions of the uh, in the sutta to see the arising and passing away of experience as a way of cleaning up the field of perception cleaning up the field uh, in releasing the clinging that binds us to uh, the past, binds us to habits and patterns that uh, just generate and perpetuate uh, dukkha. 
And rebalancing negative attentional bias. I, I increasingly feel this is such an important aspect of mindfulness. Think about the image of the watchtower. You know, having this overview, having this sense of space, having this sense of inclusivity that actually sees everything from the watchtower, but is not actually preferencing one thing over another. And we see how much we're kind of, you know, so wired to do that. And I've spoken about this already. So, so wired to highlight what is broken. And mindfulness does a lot of that rebalancing through noticing coexistence. You know, if you if you uh, think about the pleasant events calendar in, in uh, NBCT eight-week programs, you know, how we actually need to quite consciously attune ourselves to what is well, because it has a much quieter voice than what is broken. You know, so there needs to be that conscious attuning to really connect with what is well, what is easeful, because sometimes it's just a whisper. Also, the cultivations of metta and joyfulness are really great allies in this aspect of mindfulness because they have within them so much about generosity, about forgiveness, about allowing, about seeing things as they are, about calming that, that fuel of negative attentional bias, which is, which is judgment and aversion. It is it's such a powerful dimension of sati. And one that we'll be returning to tomorrow evening in our talk. I think it's time to draw to a close now. And just an encouragement again, as always, uh, as you sit with the experience of the last hour, just to pick up anything that's helpful and know that you can let go of anything that's not. Yeah. There may just be even one piece from the last hour that you think, oh yeah, okay, that is something that I could really bring into my practice and really practice embodying. That's great. You know, that's great. Uh, these talks will be available to, to listen to. And, you know, I hope at the very least, there's a sense of what a rich field uh, of practice this is that we enter when we practice mindfulness what what a blessing it is to be uh, practicing and teaching this uh, orientation of the heart mind that has so much to offer so much to offer for the liberation of the heart Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.